0: Welcome to the show. Happy Wednesday. It's the Pete Callender Show. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 7045-7011-101800. WBT 1110. You can also email Pete at the Pete Hit me up on the Twitter machine. That is at Pete Callender. Uh, so we're going to get into, well, first off, some breaking news, which this is why I tell people at the end of the show, do not break anything while I'm gone. And yeah. here they did. Right after we had the Speaker of the House on yesterday, apparently he went and negotiated a budget deal. Yeah, I mean, like you couldn't have given me that scoop first. No, they apparently got it knocked out this morning. So the, uh, the House and the Senate have agreed to some sort of a budget agreement, a budget deal, and now, uh, according to Senator Phil Berger's office, the Senate and House um, have reached an, a deal, uh, an agreement on a joint budget. Final budget negotiations with Governor Cooper will now begin in earnest. <laughs> now we're really going to loop in the governor here and get his opinion on some of this stuff. So we'll see how that goes. Um, they don't expect, according to the reports here on uh, on social media, they don't, the Speaker of the House, he sent out a tweet, they don't expect a vote or anything to occur until, like, next week. So uh, we have that to look forward to next week. I know. Aren't you excited? It's going to be fantastic. Um. <laughs> And then there was this. I got, there's a guy, his name is, uh, hang on, where did he go? Christopher Nordstrom. And he was a former legislative assistant, and he basically, I think he got run out of the job because he just couldn't keep his left-wing politics out uh, out of his work. And uh, now he is a senior policy analyst for the uh, NC Justice, uh, that's the left-wing think tank, part of the Blueprint NC Alliance, you know, Blueprint NC. This is the uh, the constellation of leftist organizations in the state of North Carolina that got together back in uh, 20, eh, roughly like 2016. No, I'm sorry, 2012, 2016. 2012 was when Pat McCrory first won as governor and all of these groups got together in order to block all state legislative matters, right? And then, you know, that gave rise to the moral monday movement and because remember for all right for folks who don't remember or who weren't here at the time uh republicans won control of the general assembly for like the first time in a century and a half uh, since reconstruction uh since you know democrats uh basically staged a coup out in wilmington and then harnessed all of the power of uh you know, the, the military as well as the Klan and the newspapers, uh, the you know news and observer being one of them to uh, uh, to foment racial hatred and discord and to uh, to literally enact a coup out in Wilmington, North Carolina, where they uh, murdered a bunch of uh, black people and Republicans who had won the city elections there. So uh, it took about a century and a half uh, with, you know, the patronage system, the spoils system and racial intimidation and uh you know, pistol purchase permit laws uh, where sheriffs wouldn't let black people buy guns. And but eventually, eventually, Democrats lost their grip on power in this state. And so in 2010. Republicans win, but they don't actually take over until 2011, right? Because you win in November and then you get sworn in and you don't actually really do anything until the session starts. And so now they're it's now 2011 and they're kind of figuring their way out because they haven't held power before. So actually a lot of stuff that they were doing early on, you know, they, they were kind of mimicking to some degree in certain circumstances, what the Democrats had done sort of like that old PSA, you know, I learned it by watching you dad, you know, like that's uh, what they, a lot of them did. And they treated Democrats the way the Democrats had treated Republicans, of course, outrage ensued um, as it never had when Democrats did the bad treatment of the Republicans. But I digress. The point here is that The Blueprint NC organization launched and it put together all of these different uh, lefty groups. They all got together. There was a PowerPoint presentation. There was organizing and all this stuff. And this is where maybe you've heard uh, the phrase, and I'm going to, I'm sure I'll butcher it, but it's kind of like this: it's like eviscerate, agitate, cogitate, legislate. Something like that. There were like four or five of these words that all kind of rhymed, you know, and they put them all together and that was sort of their their rallying cry, but not really a rallying cry because it was all in secret. They did this thing. They had these big, these uh, conferences, they had a conference and somebody got a hold of the, of the PowerPoint presentation and that's how it got out. And so the whole point of this uh, constellation of groups was to block the Republicans from getting anything done and to block McCrory from getting anything done. And at the time, this was very difficult because Democrats, it's part of the reason why they got ousted from power. is like, they were really corrupt. I mean, like really, really corrupt. I mean, people who were around back then, they know there were so many Democrats going to prison. It was all the time. It was happening like all the time. Um, We had, well, the former speaker of the house right here from Matthews, Jim Black, who was like under investigation, he may have actually been indicted or something, or was uh may, he may have been may, he may have been charged or something when he ran for reelection and I remember um what was the fella's name Hal? I think his name was Hal something anyway, the Republican lost to Jim Black in an election, the last election that jim black had he, he that he won, and he wins over a Republican. While all of this investigation, all of this stuff is swirling all around him, proving the point that Democrats in the district—I think it was the hundredth, um, uh, uh, or not congressional, but uh, legislative district, the House district number hundred—I think is what it was—and um, they would rather have a corrupt Democrat in charge than a Republican. That, like, that's who they wanted as their representative. They sent him back to Raleigh, and then, uh, yeah, and then uh, U.S. Attorney sent him to prison. But uh, yeah, because he was taking envelopes of cash in the iHop bathroom in Salisbury. That's a true story. Like this is this stuff really happened. You got Meg Scott Phipps, you got Frank Balance, you got Mike Easley, the governor, he lost his law license. Yeah, he was investigating all this. Oh yeah, yeah. It was those were heady days. So they had done a lot. They had done a lot of corrupty stuff. And when they got busted on all this stuff and finally voters were like, You're out, they put Republicans in charge. And now what does the Democratic Party do? Ugh. Here's talk 1110993 All right, so where was I? We just sent uh, Jim Black to prison, Meg Scott Phipps, Frank Balance, Mike Ease. Oh, that's right. The North Carolina Democratic Party. They had a couple of executive directors. I don't remember all their names at this point. It's been, you know, over a decade or so. But uh, they were a bunch of them, like right in a row. That just they they resigned in disgrace. They were accused of sexual harassment. I think one was against like uh, one guy was harassing a, a male staffer, and then another one was harassing female staffers or something. They just had a bunch of scandals. There was a bunch of stuff going down. They were uh, the Democratic Party was the, the, at one point they were getting ready to uh, to like lose their headquarters. In Raleigh, like the building, literally the building, they were either renting it or um, leasing it or something. They were good. Again, they were about to be tossed out. All of this is to say things were not looking so good for the North Carolina Democratic Party. Uh, When Tom Tillis beat Kay Hagan for the U.S. Senate seat, for example, um, Kay Hagan could not rely on the state Democratic Party for any of her um, organizing assistance. She she had to run it through the county party, the Wake County Democratic Party. She could not use the state party because it was in such disarray. So uh, that's sort of a glimpse of what was going on. Republicans win and Democratic Party is just crumbling and you have the rise then of Blueprint N.C., all of these nonprofit organizations, tax and policy or tax and budget policy center, and the uh, hey, there's just a whole bunch of them, and, and they got all this money from the uh corporate ownership of WRAL News, for example, uh, uh, the Goodman family, they were all in on this stuff. Uh, you know, the usual suspects, the there's a great website called Mapping the Left, Civitas, uh, put it all together, and so you can actually go there and see all of the different organizations and how they're connected, and so. All of that leads back to a fellow by the name of Christopher Nordstrom, which is how I started off the show, talking about the senior policy analyst for the Justice Center for the uh, the Ed Law Project, I, I don't know, Education Law Project. And uh, he is very, very left, and he's all over the Twitter machine. And uh, there is a big fight right now because it's the budget. There's a big fight now about education funding. And I mentioned this a little bit yesterday with the speaker when we had him on. I've covered it a little bit here and there, which is the Leandro case. This uh, lawsuit that was filed by poor counties, poor school districts down east um, on behalf of a student and the family. And it's been in the works now for 30 years. It's been in the courtroom for 30 years. The original judge that presided over the case was a judge by the name of Howard Manning Jr., I think. And Howard Manning would talk to everybody, right? He would talk to the media. He would uh, bring people in to the courtroom. It was open and, you know, he would have these uh, discussions and all this stuff. And, and he was a Republican, by the way. And so uh, this is where the idea that uh, the sound basic education idea comes from in North Carolina, which technically is not even in the Constitution, but you hear everybody talking about it. There's a big effort right now called Lead with Leandro. These are, again, the same types of organizations that were the Blueprint NC crowd, they're all now pushing forward on the lead with Leandro stuff. And what this amounts to is now, so Howard Manning retired as a judge. He retired, and now you got a new judge overseeing the case. He's out of Union County, and he's a Democrat. And he has told the legislature, you should adopt the plan that these uh, litigants, the plaintiffs, came up with In their lawsuit, they hired a consultant who came in with the Board of Education. They did some big consulting work, and they come up with a number. It's like $8 billion or whatever, and they're like, you need to fund all of this. And Democratic governor, Democratic lawmakers, they've proposed a budget for education in North Carolina with that funding figure included, right? So you got a Democrat judge saying that the Republican-led legislature must... Adopt the Democrats' spending plan. This is now going to lead to a constitutional crisis. So, now that you've got this budget um, agreement that was announced just uh, I don't know, about half an hour ago, this fellow Christopher Nordstrom pulls a quote that comes from a news story here Um The question was, do lawmakers think North Carolina is already providing a sound, basic education? That was the question for Senate leader Phil Berger. Do lawmakers think North Carolina is already providing a sound, basic education? And Berger responded, I don't think anybody would think we are where we need to be in terms of educational outcomes so I think there's a lot of disagreement on that. Or so I don't think there's a lot of disagreement on that. So again, are, do we have a sound basic? Are we providing a sound basic education for kids? And he says, I don't think anybody would think that we are where we need to be in terms of outcomes. And so this uh, lefty guy Nordstrom, he says, this is a stunning admission to him. That after 10 years in charge... Berger and the Republicans, obviously, are still failing to provide North Carolina's one and a half million students with a constitutional education, which it's awkwardly phrased there. It's yeah. I mean, I don't doubt that they're not learning about the Constitution either. But <laughs> what he's talking about there is a constitutionally mandated, right, sound, basic education. Now, one of the things. Uh. uh I've interviewed him several times over the years. His name is Marcus Brandon. He's a former Democratic lawmaker. He's a big believer, though, in the voucher programs, opportunity scholarships. And he says the Constitution requires that we provide for an education, not for public schools. And there's a difference. See, and that's what this, that's what this comment from Christopher Nordstrom illustrates for us. It's really instructive because for Senator Berger and the Republicans in general to, to say That look, we are not where we need to be with educational outcomes. I think everybody would probably agree with that, that we're not where we want to be. And to the left, that's an admission that we're not funding K through 12 GovCo schools enough. When Senator Berger is talking about educational outcomes, Nordstrom automatically assumes he's talking about K through 12 government schools. This is sort of the blind spot that a lot of folks on the left have. And it's why uh, a lot of the school board meetings are getting really nasty about the COVID masks and all of that stuff. We're going to get into all of this today on the show. But right now we're going to get into some news. Here's Mark Muller at the WBT News Center. Here's Talk eleven ten ninety nine three WBT Pete Callender Show Charlotte Observer and uh, the News and Observer so the McClatchy Editorial Board they all get together and they write stuff and they tell us the right way to think about things what their beliefs are on stuff and uh, just for the you know there's no bleed over whatsoever into any of the coverage that you read in the papers there's a wall there's a wall. But also some doors between the editors and the the news department. Okay, so uh, they had a piece a couple of days ago. Headline: NC Republicans say ideology has no place in schools. Does that include private ones? This they say this is what school choice looks like, and it's got the scare quotes over. It's got the scare quotes over the school choice term. Because it's a scary thing. It's like school choice. Yeah, yeah. The audio is just terrible here. Sorry. I think I'm just going to quit doing all the sound bites just altogether. <laughs> they just don't work. Um, alrighty. So the uh, North Carolina's public schools remain woefully underfunded. They say woefully underfunded. Do you know how much the uh, how much of the budget the state spends on education? It's more than half. It's more than half. Billions of dollars on education, K-12 education. Um, They say millions of taxpayer dollars are siphoned into private schools, siphoned. Like these private schools are just rolling up and just like, you know, sticking a hose through the window and just like, you know, giving a couple of pulls on the hose. And all of a sudden all the money just starts flowing through the tube. Just pouring right into the private school. How dare you take that money from those schools? You realize there's no kid in the school, right? Like, so you're demanding that you get the money even though you don't get the kid to teach? Like, I don't understand how that's a fair argument. <laughs> if if you're not educating the child in the building, why would you need the money to educate the child that's not in the building? I, I've never understood this argument. I mean, I mean, I understand why they say it, because they think you're stupid, but um, I don't understand how they think that makes logical sense, that the money is somehow siphoned away, it's taken away from the schools. There's no kid there to teach. Why would you get that money? Why should you get that money? You're saying you just deserve all the money for whatever. So why not just do that? Why not say, okay, you know, we're going to do a head count of every child in North Carolina, and that's what the per pupil number should be. That's what we should base our funding on. Why not do it that way? Because in North Carolina, the state is responsible for operations, so they pay the operating cost and they 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 do a head count, the 20-day head count uh, at the beginning of every school year, right? You, what's the total number of kids that are in the classroom in the schools and then they tell the state and the state's like here's your allocation, right? I mean, in crude form here, but this is the idea. The local counties can supplement that, and Mecklenburg does, right, to like a billion dollars or whatever. And uh, they also uh, do the construction of the buildings and the capital costs. So your local counties handle capital, and your state handles operations, the operating cost. That's the way it's been done. But if this is the argument that a kid who isn't in your school somehow still requires you to get money, well, then why not every single child that's not in your school that's going to a private school without a scholarship, uh, opportunity scholarship, without a voucher? Like, why stop at just the voucher money? Why not just say, hey, there are, you know, I don't know, 2 million kids in North Carolina, school-age kids, 2 million kids, that's what you should get. Why wouldn't you just make that argument? That you somehow are entitled to... A you know per pupil expenditure amount, just by nature of the fact that there's a child present in the state, why not just do that? <laughs> What's wrong with that argument? That's just as illogical as this one. So their beef here is that some of these schools are Christian, and get this: when they when the kids go to the Christian school, you may want to sit down for this they are taught Christian things. I know. it. Like, this is outrageous, right? I, I like the fact, though, that they acknowledge that if you go to— this criticism is based on an acknowledgment that if you go to, let's say, a Catholic school, you're going to learn that Catholicism is pretty okay, right? You're going to learn some Catholic stuff if you go to a Catholic school. I suspect also if you go to a Jewish school, you're going to learn some stuff about Judaism, Uh, I suspect if you go to Islamic school, you're going to learn some stuff about Islam and how it's A-OK, too. I think you're going to learn that when you go to a government school, that government is A-OK. Don't you think? Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that a logical, consistent standard? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. If you are going to a a school district, if you're going to a a government school district, do you think you're going to learn that government stinks? Why would you learn that? Every other example of a school that's run by somebody else—I mean, that's their argument here. How dare you send your child to a Christian school? They're going to learn stuff about Christianity. They're going to learn Christian principles, right? So they—they they teach a biblical worldview. Oh, and the discrimination against LGBTQ plus people. This is the other thing. How dare you, right, be opposed to like gay marriage, for example? You Christian school. Curriculum being opposed to gay marriage. How dare you? You know, you think that's a sin. How dare you have a belief that I don't have as well? You can't tell kids these things. How dare you disagree? This is essentially what they're arguing. Because this is about control. It's about controlling the curriculum and what kids learn. Right? That's that's the whole point here. Why else would you funnel everybody into a K-12 model when you know that that model cannot service the needs of all the kids, why? Why else would you would you do that? They go on to say in this the this is again the editorial board. The North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship Program, passed by the General Assembly in 2013, provides state-funded vouchers to eligible families to pay tuition at the private school of their choice. The program has cost the state. There again, has cost the state. It's not a cost to the state. It's actually a savings to the state. It is. It's a savings to the state. You're because the, the opportunity scholarships don't even cover the full per pupil cost. Yeah. So you're actually making money on this deal. You're getting money from taxpayers that you're now not having to spend, but they do. Uh, they send it to the schools, but I digress. The program has not cost the state again. Again, this is a fundamental assumption that the money belongs to the state and not the taxpayer, that the money isn't the parents. It's not for the kid. It's for the government. And that is, that's the worldview. That's the, that's the prism through which the editors at the uh, McClatchy papers see this through. The program has cost the state upwards of $150 million since its inception. Diverting funds away from public education in the process. Once again, how is it diverting funds away from public education if the kid isn't there? Is there public education occurring when the child isn't in the seat? Like, are you just teaching to an empty seat? That's ridiculous. News Talk 1110993 WBT. So the uh, McClatchy editorial board claimed that supporters of the voucher program, primarily Republicans, Say it promotes school choice, extending equity and opportunity to lower-income students who otherwise may not have the means to attend private schools, but there's not much accountability for private schools who receive state money. Oh, my God. All right. This, there's so much wrong with these first three paragraphs from the, editor, from the editorial. Um, I would submit to you that private schools schools that get the opportunity, scholarship money, they're actually more accountable. Private schools are more accountable. You know why? They get to close. Failure is actually one of the options available. They'll close down, and nobody will come in and save them. Uh, They'll close if they do not provide value for the dollar. Unlike public schools, where a public school just gets more money. They'll get more money, they'll get a a team to come in, some experts or whatever, and they'll, a turnaround team, right? They'll get all of that kind of stuff. Maybe a new name on the school building, that'll do it, right? They'll get all of this infusion of resources and money and people and all this stuff, and uh, they don't get to close. They won't close down. It's rare. It's very, very rare. It's a big deal to close down a school. I'm not even aware of any of that ever happening in not Charlotte or anywhere in North Carolina, that a school closed down for poor performance. You just don't see it. Right. So that's so is that accountability? Like true accountability. Oh, I mean, I get it. Yeah, you're going to have some people complain at a school board meeting for a little while or some politician be like, oh, I really want this school to turn around. But they come and go. Politicians come and go. Except the Malik, that's true. But like all of the others, they come and go. And um, that school is still going to be cranking out kids that are not educated. Where's the accountability for that? Who do you hold accountable for that? Because you can't, it's not the kids' fault. It's not the teacher's fault. It's not the principal's fault or the assistant principal or any of the middle managers or any of the administrators or any of the board of education members or. Is it? It's all of our fault, right? It's the village's fault. Is that it? It's the taxpayers' fault because we didn't give enough money. Is that the idea too? I seriously am like, I'm, I, I'm genuinely interested. Like, where is that accountability? What does that actually mean? Because a private school will close, people will be like, "I'm not sending my kid there. That's a terrible education." They, I, oh yeah, you hear about you know. Little Johnny, he grew up and he couldn't get a job because of the degree from his <laughs> from his private school. This, by the way, this is not a foreign concept. This is exactly the way colleges operate. This is colleges, colleges, universities. If you got to go to a good school, quote unquote, right? There's a certain reputation for excellence. Although nowadays, uh, um, how is how is that any different? A voucherized kind of a program. Medicare, same way. Voucherized kind of program. Here's your chunk of money. How about food stamps? Voucherized kind of program. Where's everybody saying there's no accountability in the food stamp program? You don't ever hear the left arguing about that. It's only on K-12 education. Why? Why do you think that is? Bob Lupke at the uh, uh, John Locke Foundation had a really good piece about this. I'm going to get to it in a minute. First, let me get Dave on the show. Hello, Dave. Welcome. How are you?
1: Uh, thank you as a businessman, as have supervised for a number of years on my own business for a number of years, I can tell you that the kids coming out of the public schools in Charlotte are a disgrace. The kids I found that come out of the private schools in every way, shape, and form were better educated, better character. And everything else there has been studies done that found that kids who come out of the private Christian schools were less likely to have babies out of wedlock to get in drugs, commit crimes, just a whole lot of things, and better to be just good citizens all the way around so why are they really against it except they want to control everybody's mind
0: so the if if the uh if the initial premise of k-12 education and we're going to give them the benefit of doubt not ascribe the actual premise which was to get people off the farms and into factories right but like the modern idea is to what prepare them for the world right is to is to launch them with a with a mindful of information and uh rationality and logic and and facts and how to think for themselves and all of that right that's supposedly what it's supposed to be about well, what happens when you have a divergence of opinions about the things that are required for that child to be a functioning member of society, right? Because that's where we are. What you've just described is, is where we are. We have a whole bunch of people that think one way of behaving is acceptable, and you have a whole bunch of other people who think, no, in a society we should be not behaving like that. We should be behaving like this. And so you've got these two different competing ideas, and which one are we going to teach in the schools? Which one are we? Well, which one of these do we impart?
1: Well, they're trying to, to take away the rights of the parents to teach their children what's right and wrong. And also, as a minister, I find it really uh, sickening this kind of stuff that they are teaching in schools today. Because the kids coming out of the uh, public schools, uh, they are less trustworthy. They are less prepared to go to work, and so many of them uh, just—they're just unhirable. Hmm.
0: Oh, I have heard that yeah. this—I have heard this is a problem uh, from a lot of business owners. I appreciate the call, Dave. Thank you. Uh, th- and this is it. Like it, it's—and I know what if you're of the left and you hear what Dave just said about how um, you know they don't want their kids being taught these parents don't want their kids being taught certain things and you hear that as bigotry you hear that as prejudice or discriminatory or whatever right but what is that and but what does that actually mean right it means that you have a different view of how you see society and what it should be promoting so what you're telling me then is that you are using the schools to do that very thing are you not you are, in fact, using schools to do that. And so now you've got people who object to you using the schools to do this thing. And you're going to, what, say you're not doing it? It's one of the it's, it's one of the most obvious gaslighting efforts in modern society is what occurs in the schools. And you saw the latest iteration of it in critical race theory teachings, right? This is just the latest intersectionality came out of critical race theory, intersectionality, the... Uh, the crossover here. Um, and now it's all infused in like everything. It's all over the place. And if you don't want to participate in that, if you refuse to view everybody through a racialized lens, right? If you refuse to treat people differently based on the color of their skin, if you refuse to do that, then what they're saying is like, you don't have any role in our business, right? You, you don't have a role in the teaching staff, Uh, You don't have a role uh, as a university student, right? If you don't want to submit to these types of struggle sessions, these trainings, then there's no place for you. Same thing's happening, by the way, with COVID, right? Vaccinated versus unvaccinated, right? You will be made to care. You will be made to take a position. And now you've got these health organizations like Novant, what the other day, just fired like... Hundred people, two hundred people, whatever it was, just just fired them, but didn't fire them. They called it a voluntary resignation, although it wasn't voluntary. They got fired, right? So you got businesses that are firing people, but not getting the penalty of firing people. They don't. Have to, they, and I, so these people are not getting unemployment, as I understand it. Yeah, they're not. Go- they don't get the unemployment benefit because it's a temporary or uh, a uh, voluntary resignation. You're forcing people into a separate caste. And you're telling me that this doesn't have anything to do with your view of how society should be ordered? Give me a break.